Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Richard Cardillo. I made this profound decision to give my life to Jesus because doesn't every 16-year-old know what they want to do with their penis for the rest of their lives? (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to let you guys know about a bunch of new, brand new tour dates that we just added. Toronto on August 11th. We will be back in Toronto, Canada at the Great Hall. The theme that night is outrageous. So that's August 11th in Toronto. On November 3rd, we're returning to Baltimore. Coming back to Baltimore at the Creative Alliance on November 3rd. And the theme that night is Obsession. Chicago, November 9th, we're back at Lincoln Hall. November 9th in Chicago, the theme that night is Revealing. Madison, Wisconsin, this will be our first time ever in Madison. November 10th in Madison at the High Noon Saloon, the theme that night is huge. And Detroit, we return to Detroit on November 11th at the Magic Bag. The theme that night is surprise. November 11th in Detroit, the theme is surprise. Phoenix, we are in Phoenix for the very first time on December 2nd at Valley Bar. The theme that night is jaw-dropping. So December 2nd, Phoenix, the theme is jaw-dropping. Now, If you live in any of those towns or anywhere near those towns, you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video there that explains how to do it. You can write to me at kevin at risk-show.com if you have any questions, but pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And I want to talk a little bit about Stamps.com, motherfuckers. Stamps.com. You know I can mail any letter, any package using just my computer and printer, and then the mailman or mail lady picks it up. You can avoid the hassle of going to the post office. You can create your own Stamps.com account in minutes online. You just click print and mail and, and you're done, right? It's convenient. It's easy. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. It brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, and they'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. So right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the great Bobby Hutcherson behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Reversals. Three stories where things took a turn. I mean, come on. Things take a turn in every goddamn story. But you gotta call the episode something, don't you? Don't you now? In a little bit, we're going to hear a couple of stories from our big mass mocha show in North Adams, Massachusetts from a couple weekends ago. Holy cow. What a wonderful museum. What a lovely community. What a fantastic night that was at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. Want to get back there as soon as possible. So in a bit, we'll hear from Richard Cardillo at that show. But first, we're going to hear from a a favorite of ours, Christine Gentry. She's told so many wonderful stories on the show before and in so many different places. She's told in New York and in Boston and now at the Mass Mocha. So it's a thrill to have her back on the show. You can find Christine at christinegentry.net. Here she is now with a story we call Fire Alarms. So I walked into my first year of teaching in this monstrous Boston Public School with more confidence than I've ever walked into anything. I had rocked student teaching. I had read all the books. I was basically your cliched white lady who thinks that her Where I'm From poems and writer's notebooks are going to change the world. And the first day, I was handed a roster that had 36 names on it, but I had a room that only had 31 desks. And when I asked my next-door neighbor about it, she says, oh, honey, don't worry, they'll never all be here. I was also told at a faculty meeting that the administration was so hands-off that the teachers had the power to suspend. If you assigned a detention, the kid was serving it with you, and if he didn't serve it, then you had the power to suspend him. My schedule had 120-minute blocks back-to-back, first ninth grade and then 10th grade. Within my first week, I figured out that the school was actually extremely unsafe, Going to the bathroom ran you the risk of getting jumped, which happened in my first week. One of my freshman boys came back shaking, red-faced, missed they took my wallet, they took my phone, they took everything. And to this day, I still have this visceral reaction to the sound of fire alarms, because at that school, if it wasn't a planned fire drill and the fire alarm went off, someone probably pulled it, because it's easier to hurt someone in the mess of a thousand people trying to exit the building. I often refer to this time in my life as the winter of my life, my first year of teaching. I remember my very first weekend after this job, I went home and I sat at my computer and I made a table. And on the left-hand column of the table was all the crazy shit that had happened in my classroom that week. And then on the right-hand side, I wrote, I came up with policies, right? Here's what I'm gonna do about all of these things. I went to Michael's, I bought this cute little wooden G because my last name is Gentry and I thought it would be such a cute bathroom pass and it would take care of all of my bathroom issues. And the first day that I introduced this bathroom pass, a kid threw it across the room because I told him he couldn't go to the bathroom at that particular moment. And I remember sweeping up the broken pieces of this sad little G, right, and thinking, this is a metaphor for my teacher dreams. (laughs) And I went to my, like, veteran colleagues. I was like, guys, I need your help. In student teaching, I never had a kid defy me. I'm not sure what to do here. And I saw them look at each other like, oh, boy, this lady's not going to make it to Christmas. They were like, give him detention. I was like, I tried. (laughs) They don't come. They're like, suspend him. I was like, I don't know how to do that. I was working so hard. It felt like the first time in my life that I couldn't overachieve myself out of this problem. I was coming in early. I was staying late. I would come in on the weekends. At one time, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I anointed the doorway of my classroom with oil. (laughs) I was like... (laughs) I was like, baby Jesus, if this is a, if this is a demon, cleanse this place. <laughs> it's, it slowly started to dawn on me, you know, the first couple months that these weren't bad kids, right? These kids just wanted to feel safe. And so why don't I start with what I have control over, right? Like this classroom, this environment. So I started locking my door from the outside. 
I knew that that was a big thing, right? I took this ridiculous 10-page single-space document and I, I boiled it down to a poster that just said, mutual respect and no hate speech, and I put it up on the wall. And I thought, like, how can I get kids more involved in what's happening in class? So I was kicking off a new book. It was Lord of the Flies. And I said, okay, guys, we're going to start this off with a journal entry. I was like, close your eyes for a second and think, what would happen if all of the rules disappeared, right? So start small. What if all the rules in this classroom disappeared? What about in the school? What about in the city, the state, the country, the world? And they wrote furiously. And then I asked them to share. And this girl, Laura, this very strong-willed girl, she raises her hand on the back. I said, yes, Laura. She goes, no offense, miss, but uh, if there were no rules, a room full of black kids wouldn't be listening to a white lady tell them what to do. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> that's an amazing answer. Like, that's exactly the kind of thing that I would want you to say. Like, why don't we talk for a minute about why you do listen to me? And I scrapped the rest of what I had planned that day and had this very candid conversation with them about race and power and how these things intersect in urban education. And it really felt like the first time that we were engaging with each other in an authentic way. And then at the end of that period, another student's phone went off and she answered it. And I knew that she wanted me to pick a fight. So I was like, maybe she's just gonna say something real quick and hang up, but no, no. She has this big rockaway coat on, she flipped that fur-lined hood over, and she started having the loudest phone conversation you could possibly have. And so I walked over to her, I was like, Shanika, you need to get off the phone. And she snapped her neck back, and the hood flew back, and she said, hold on, my teacher's being a bitch. And Laura stood up and says, oh, no, 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 pointing at the poster. That's hate speech, and we don't do that here. <laughs> and Shaniqua, like, sucked her teeth but hung up her phone. And it felt like this real turning point where I wasn't the only one, you know, like, attempting to build something here. And soon after, it was early, it was like 7 a.m., I'm setting up for the class, and I hear this ruckus in the hallway. And my teacher, Spidey Sense, goes off, right? Like, whatever that is, it ain't good, and I don't want it to spill into this room. So I go to the doorway, and I see that it's Laura and her best friend, Tiffany. And they're viciously arguing, like, in each other's faces, like only, you know, teenage best friends can. And in all of my newfound rookie teacher confidence, I step between them. I was like, ladies, ladies. You love each other, <laughs> and it's time to learn. <laughs> Come on into the classroom. <laughs> and I had this long rectangular room, and I was like, I'm going to split you guys up. That'll be the solution. I was like, uh, Tiffany, I'll put you in this corner, and Laura, you'll sit right up front near me, and I forbid you to look at each other for 120 minutes. <laughs> And sure enough, within five minutes, right, Laura turns around, shoots some look over her shoulder at Tiffany. Tiffany says, what the fuck are you looking at, bitch? And they both get up. And they start moving toward each other, and it's fat. I mean, chairs are flying, desks are screeching, and I do the quick calculation. Like, I probably have four seconds, five seconds, to get Laura, who's closest to me, out of this classroom, because my door's always locked, right? And so if I can get her out, then I can keep them from hitting each other, and I know this is gonna get physical. So I start pushing Laura toward the door, you know, putting my body between them, and I can hear Tiffany coming up from behind me, and I get right to that threshold of the door, and Laura lobs this juice bottle she had been holding over my shoulder, and it hits Tiffany. And so Tiffany throws a punch, and she clocks me right in the nose. And there's this like white flash of pain, and I push Laura the rest of the way, and I close the door, and I'm grabbing my nose, I turn around, and Henry, this very tall male student who sat in the back, he had gotten up and grabbed Tiffany from behind, and Tiffany was like kicking, moving around, she looked like a beetle on its back. <laughs> and he put her down on the table real hard and goes, you don't hit Miss G. <laughs> and the whole room was like, yeah, you don't hit Miss G. <laughs> and there's this beautiful moment where for all of my efforts, right, to keep them safe, they were also keeping me safe. And for whatever reason, this day was really a turning point for Laura. She just dove, just head first, this dive into really bad 
uh, situation. Like she stopped coming to school, she wasn't doing work, she was being very disrespectful, and I found myself on a suspension hearing for her because she had told the math teacher, shut up, you fat bitch. And the math teacher had given her detention and she had not served it. And so the teachers were in a circle deciding whether to suspend Laura. And I fought for her. I was like, guys, I understand that this is unacceptable behavior. I'm just really hoping that we can come up with some other consequence. She's not coming to school already. I just really worry that if we suspend her, she's going to drop out. Can we please be flexible? Like, I have a good relationship with her. Can we somehow make it to where she has to stay after with me? I'll make her do your work. And they agreed. And I sat down with Laura that afternoon and I told her, like, here's what I did, but here's what you need to do. And she was staring at the floor and she said, okay, okay, miss. And the next day she came on time. I had her first period and she was so awesome during class. And when she left, I was like, okay, girl, like, you're going to be here, right? After school, we have to do this work. And she smiled. She said, I got you, miss. And 30 minutes into the next class period, the fire alarm went off. And I gathered my freshmen, and we started walking down the stairwell. And as soon as we got outside, sure enough, there's this teeming pile of screaming, laughing mess of children. And I turned around, and I told my kids, get back in the building, get back in the building right now. And I moved them back into the stairwell. And as we were walking up those five flights, the news rolled through them like a wave. It was Laura. There had been some altercation with another girl. She had been stabbed. And I remember my heart was beating so wildly, I was afraid that my students would hear it. And I was like, I still have an hour left in class. Like, I don't even know what to do. And I can't tell you anything about that hour of my life except that I managed to hold it together. And when the last student left the room and the door latch clicked, I just collapsed into this dirty pencil smudge desk and I wept. Because the only reason that Laura was in school that day was because of me. She was supposed to have been suspended. And this thing that I thought was such a success, there was my first big breakthrough with a kid, was not only a failure, but potentially a mortal one. And we get an email from the administration A couple hours later, said Laura's in the hospital, but she's going to live. She's going to be okay. But we're going to safety transfer her to another school when she gets out. And I never saw Laura again. And I went on for more than a decade to teach hundreds of more students in Boston and in New York. And I failed so many more times. It's one of my favorite things about teaching is that you can never do everything perfect. But I never forgot about Laura And I never stopped wondering how she was doing. And not long ago, she found me on Facebook. And her profile picture, you guys, it was so beautiful. She looked like such a grown-up. She had this beautiful boyfriend. They were holding this baby. She had just finished nursing school, and I just remember being so proud of her and so relieved that she was okay. And I'm looking at this picture and I get a notification that she had posted on my wall and it was just three words. It said, thank you, miss. Christine Gentry! She is always so wonderful. Remember, you can find her at christinegentry.net. She mentioned Lord of the Flies, and it reminded me of something I haven't thought of in the longest time. When I I, I was in high school, uh, I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and so there was just a ton of, like, fear of, you know, the word faggot was everywhere. This was the early 80s, and it was just a, a very, like, a pressure cooker of, oh my gosh, who, who, who might be gay, who might find out I'm gay, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but there was one teacher there, an English teacher named Mr. Marshall, who was so gay. 
and just loved it and owned it and every you know there was nothing anyone could do like he was just so exuberant and fun and positive you know about you know enjoying being gay that people just loved him right there was no getting around it but he also had this weird habit i don't know what made him feel like he could do this but he would do it of zeroing in on the boys he knew were gay just from his own senses and just kind of calling it out in class, right? So we used to have to read shit aloud, right? In Youth in Literature was the name of the class that I took with him. The first book we were reading was Catcher in the Rye, right? And there was this section where Holden Caulfield is talking about how, oh, I hate girls because they're so phony. All girls are just pining away for their knight in shining armor. That's all they want is a knight in shining armor. Now, Mr. Marshall had this huge face and this huge nose and this huge laugh. Whenever there was like a school assembly or a show going on, you could hear him at the very back going, And he would, when it came to this Holden Caulfield scene, he's reading it aloud about how girls want their knight in shining armor, and he says, he just looks right at me in the middle of the classroom and says, sound familiar, Allison? Pining away for your knight in shining armor? And they're like, what the fuck? And then there came the day where we were reading Lord of the Flies, right? And he was like, this next passage, I think we'll have Mr. Allison read. And I hadn't read the book the night before. I hadn't done the assignment, so I had no idea what the fuck was coming. If, if, if you remember, Lord of the Flies is all about like how violence, especially a young, among young men, can reach a fever pitch and get all out of control. So there's this scene where the boys are hunting a pig, right? And everyone's like, kill the pig, kill the pig, kill the pig. And the lead boy, Ralph, he takes a spear. And, and, and so, okay, so he's like, Allison, you read this passage. So I'm reading it and it's like, and then Ralph took the spear and stabbed it into the rear end of the pig and took it back out and stabbed it back in and out and in and out and in. I'm like, oh my God, what is happening to me? And furthermore, William Golding, what is happening with you? Oh, so anyway, but I still love Mr. Marshall. God bless him. He's still around. Okay, I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. He is only a year into doing this storytelling scene, but he has already won five Moth Slams. Uh, he's also very dear to my heart because he is an activist. There's a viral video going around right now of him being arrested at Trump Tower. He said that... He said that he was doing some activism just the other day, but he said, I made sure not to get arrested so I could be there for risk. <laughs> so please welcome to the stage, Richard Cardillo! Is that good? Uh, yeah, let's Thank you so much. For most of my life, I've been a teacher. In the last 15, 16 years of my life, I've been the senior manager at an educational nonprofit. Biggest responsibility I have is I mentor all the new interns, all the new grad students, all the people entering the job force for the first time. And I try to instill in them very, very quickly the importance of developing transferable skills. To take those knowledge, skills, talents that you have that you're really good in one arena and transfer them to another. And I just told them, you'll be better off in life if you could develop your transferable skills. Yet I never once shared with them the powerful way I found out about my transferable skills. It's 1987. I'm 28 years old and I'm still a virgin. I had spent the last 14 years of my life 
as a member of a Catholic monastery of religious teaching brothers. At the age of 16, I made this profound decision to give my life to Jesus. Because doesn't every 16-year-old know what they want to do with their penis for the rest of their lives? I was hiding out. I knew what I was doing. I was so afraid of who I was. I was from such a religious family that I couldn't live my life that way. And I figured if I enter a monastery, I could pray away the gay and just work hard enough. Go in and my entire life changed. I was completely repressed. Even my name changed. I'm Richard. For 14 years, I was Brother Mark. So everything changed. I remember kneeling in the chapel in Novitiate and just at that time shaking because I said, I know there were alternative things that you could be doing on your knees other than praying, Richard, (laughs) but I wouldn't. I just couldn't do it. I kind of got into it an awful lot, but the novice master would make us watch the movie Sound of Music all the time, and I'd even fantasize about that. I'd say, you know, Maria von Trapp, when she wanted to escape from the monastery, she'd go prancing through the Alps. I wanted to escape from my monastery and go cruising through the Ramble in Central Park, the big cruising area there, but I didn't, and I wouldn't, because I had that pesky vow of celibacy. I kept channeling the words of Horton, not the saint, the elephant. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. Brother Mark will be faithful 100%, and I just wanted to live up to my vows. I asked my superiors, please give me really hard work to do. They had assigned me, after teaching for two years in an all-boys Catholic high school in Harlem, they had assigned me to teach in the Brothers Mission Schools in Lima, Peru. And for eight years down there, I worked with the poorest of the poor, but my internal was not changing. I finally couldn't take it anymore. I petitioned Rome for a dispensation of my vows, and I said, I have to bag this whole thing. But more than that, I had to get rid of this virgin territory. So when I left the brothers, I decided to stay in Peru, almost like a gap year, to just stay put. And I figured I could do my coming out right in Peru, right in Lima the most repressed country of Latin America. It was still illegal to be gay. It was on the books that sodomy amongst men was illegal. You could be kicked out of the country. I was in the closet with my job at the school where I got employment, and if they ever found out that I was gay, I would have been kicked out of the country. So I figured, just go slowly. You can get out of this, Richard. You can really come out in a slow manner. I'd come home every day from school, and on the steps of my apartment, right on the stoop there, there'd always be this couple. It was Sergio and Maritza. They were a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And I'd greet them, hola, que tal, como estas, how are things going? Just small talk. And Sergio was this burly, masculine guy, just exuding machismo. And Maritza was just this little wisp of a woman who had the longest black hair I had ever seen. And she'd be seated on the stoop with her legs spread, and Sergio would be spread between her legs just lounging. And it kind of reminded me of a Latin modern version of Michelangelo's Pieta. And they were great in each other's arms. One day I go home, and it's only Sergio on the steps. So he says, hola, Richard, como estas? I said, bien, que tal? And he's explaining that Maritza wasn't around. And we're talking. More small talk than we ever did. And finally he said, listen, why don't we go get a par de chelas, a couple of beers, and go up to your apartment and continue the conversation. So I figured, okay. We go upstairs. Quickly the conversation turns to sex. And I'm trying to match him beat for beat with all this macho stuff. Yeah, women, you can't live with them. You can't live without them. And I'm going at it with him. And then he starts complaining about Maritza. Ah, esa hembra, Maritza, this chick, Maritza, she won't give me what I want. She will not suck my dick. And I'm like, I knew. I was just recently out of the closet. But I already knew that gay or straight oral sex, I thought it was standard on all models. It was just, it came with the package. So this was a shocker for me. And he said, and even more than that, I'm just so mad at her for not doing that, I will not go down on her go down? This was the first time I had heard that. So I figured it had something to do with that region down there for women, but I wasn't quite sure. But I didn't ask any questions. And it keeps going on, and finally gets a little quiet. He says, Oye, ¿te puedo preguntar una pregunta bien delicada? Can I ask you a really sensitive question? I said, sure, go ahead. He said, ¿me quieres chupar la pinga? Te pago. You want to suck my dick? I'll pay you for it. 
I froze. And then the moral quandary that I was so used to for my whole goddamn life started with the good angel here and the bad angel here. And I'm saying, Richard, you can't do this. You know he has a girlfriend. It's just not right. You cannot cheat for that. And the other side of me is saying, Richard, you need to practice. You need this. You need to practice. You got a learning curve to catch up with. And on the other side, I'm saying, no, he could really blackmail you. He could take you to the cleaners. You could be kicked out of the country. So you got to be careful. And then the other side of me is saying, no, but you need the practice. <laughs> but the reptilian brain kicked in in my back. And I'm thinking inside my head, fuck, yes, I want to suck your dick. Of course I do. School's open. School's in session. This is a learning curve. Get to it. Come on. So I look at him very meekly and I said, Okay. <laughs> takes his pants off, he takes his underwear off, and I get on my knees, because I'm thinking that's what I'm supposed to do. And I look at him, and he looks a little bit different from me, and I was used to that. Most men in Lima are uncircumcised, uncut. So while I'm down there, he pulls back the foreskin, and I see this big, bulbous head on him. And I start licking it. And he starts moaning. And I'm like, I'm doing something right. (laughs) So I go a little bit further in, And he starts moaning faster and faster. So I said, go a little bit more. And I do, because he's just moaning now like crazy. Now, I don't want to brag. (laughs) Well, actually, yes, I do want to (laughs) brag. I don't know if it was all the altar wine through the ages. I don't know if it was the Gregorian chant that opened up my windpipes. But from that first moment, I never had an issue with a gag reflex. So I just kept going deeper and deeper and saying, this is fine, I can do it. And he's saying, ma profundo, ma profundo, deeper, deeper. And I'm like, I'll go deeper, deeper. He finishes, he comes, gets up, not too many words, no payment, like he said, and he leaves. <laughs> Two nights later, a knock on my window. Richard, it's Sergio. Come on in. Same thing, he gets ready, I'm going at it. Ma profundo, ma profundo, and we're just going at it. And we finish, and this time when he's getting dressed, he said, listen, I want to ask you something. I have two really great buddies, and I swore them to secrecy, but I told them what you do. And they said they'd pay you for that same service. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to get into this. The next night, a guy comes to my house and he said, I paid Sergio, and he said he was going to pay you and that you'd give me a service. And I'm like, fuck no, he didn't pay me anything. No way. But I do it. (laughs) Two nights later, another guy comes, same thing. I paid Sergio, you're going to... So this was going back and forth between the three of them for about a month now, every two nights. One night, there's a heavy pounding on my door, and I open it up, and Sergio is there, and he lunges at me, takes me by the neck, and he puts me up against the wall, and he's choking me. He said, oye, tu maricón de mierda, te mato, you fucking faggot. I will kill you. And I'm like, que te pasa, que te pasa? What's going on? What did I do? And he said, I am really in deep shit. Maritza has been following me to your apartment, and she thinks she knows what I've been up to. And she now has this crazy idea that we're sleeping together. And I'm thinking, well, it's not that crazy an idea. We technically are sleeping together. (laughs) But I said, okay, I'm just too scared. Let go of my neck. He said, you are going to do exactly what I say, or I'm going to tell everybody and out you at school. You're going to be out of this country so fast. I had to think fast, and here's what I came up with. I told Maritza that you were a flete, a callboy, a hustler. I told her that you were a flete and that you are an expert at going down on women. And I was scouting you out for her and that I paid you to eat her out. Now I start freaking. (laughs) I had never, ever been in the presence of a naked woman. The closest I ever came was when I was a freshman in high school. I accidentally opened the door to the bathroom and my sister was coming out of the shower. And I'm kicking my freshman self saying, why the fuck didn't you listen to anatomy class in biology about female anatomy? I didn't know what to do. Now I'm freaking and I'm in deep shit. I call my friend Cheryl. She was the only teacher in the school that knew about me. Cheryl was like my earth mother. She was just so, she would luxuriate in her sexuality and sensuality. And she'd sit there with her Virginia Slim 
blowing it up in the air, recounting and regaling all her tales of sex with men, with women, with threesomes. And she'd always say to me, you got to start moving on this. And I let her know that night. I told you I started moving on it with Sergio, but we got an issue here now, Cheryl, and I need help. You got to tutor me. What the fuck do I do to eat somebody out? She said, Richard, take it easy. We can work this out. Now, start rubbing down there real easy like. And then when you get down there, pretend it's a really hot summer day and you just bought a soft serve ice cream cone and you got to lick it real fast before it starts melting all over the place. So she said, try that, start licking. And she's like, faster, faster. And and she said, that's it, keep doing that. So I'm like, okay, I'll practice. I said, you know, could I, with my tongue, I've heard of a woman's G-spot, can I you know, hit her G-spot with my tongue? She said, well, you can if you're a lizard. But no, no, you can't do that. Not at all. Why are you licking that saucer of ice cream cone? Stick your finger up there and feel through all those regions and those ridges, and you'll feel a little knob and touch it really simply, but then start going faster and faster. But Richard, this is your first time out. You will never, ever find the G-spot. Don't worry about it. The next night, knock on the door. Maritza's there. She said, oh, yeah, Richard. Sergio told me your secret about being a flete. I promise it's safe with me. And he said he'd pay you for the services you're going to give me tonight. I'm like, fuck no, there's no money. He didn't pay me anything. So she gets down on the bed. She takes all her clothes off. I wasn't sure if I had to take my clothes off. And I start rubbing away. And then I go down there and I put my mouth down there and I'm not repulsed. I mean, there's this idea that they talk about gay men that are just revolted by the sight of female pussy. For me, the first thing that hit me was an absence of something. There was no penis there. And I was used to having penises there. But more than that, it was the presence of this wondrous thing that was great to the eye, great to the touch, great to the smell. And I just was not afraid. So I went at it and I start licking away like it's a soft serve ice cream cone. And she's moving around and she's writhing and she starts the moaning. So I'm like, Richard, what you did to Sergio, what you're doing to Maritza, transferable skill. (laughs) You got it down. So I'm going at it, and she is reeling and writhing. So I figured, go for it, Richard. Stick your finger up there. See what you could do. So I'm sticking my finger up, and I touch something, and she gets electric. She is moving around, and now she's screaming. And I think I'm hurting her. So I stop, and I pull my hand out, and she's saying, don't stop, don't stop. That feels so good. Don't stop. So I keep doing it. A little later, she orgasms. She comes. She gets dressed without too many words. She leaves. The next night. It's Sergio. He wants his blowjob. Okay, come on in. Ma profundo, ma profundo. We got it all. That's fine. Two nights later, Maritza. It's her turn, and this tag team's going on. So I go at it, and she's screaming again. I find that G-spot again, and I want to scream out with glee, Cheryl, I found it. (laughs) But I didn't. She's getting dressed, and she says to me, listen, I got a favor. I have two really good girlfriends. (laughs) And I told them what you do, and they'll pay me. I'll give the money to Sergio. And then I'm like, I don't want to get into this. And then I'm thinking, no, you two are perfect together. Two friggin' peas in a pod. All this clandestine, all this payment of money. Nothing. You two deserve each other. That's what I'm thinking. This goes on for about six months, and I'm finally at wit's end. I'm like, I am not getting what I want. I am not living... I'm not living this authentic, transparent, gay life that I really wanted. And I knew I wasn't going to find it in Lima anymore. So I made the decision at the end of that academic year to come back and leave the country. And I did. I finished teaching. I got on a plane. I came to New York City. And I move in on the Lower East Side. And within a month of coming back to New York, I met a guy who ended up being my loving partner for 18 years of a beautiful relationship. It was great. It was great. And within a short amount of time, I knew this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted all along. This openness, this transparency, this sense of adventure, but mutual adventure. This is just what I wanted. On our 10th year of being together anniversary, we decided to go to this really fancy restaurant on the Lower East Side where we lived. And Peter decided he wanted to play this game. So we're drinking a whole bottle of wine. And he said, you know, I want to play this idea of what are things after being 10 years together that we still don't know about each other? And I figured, I got to come clean. So I said, you know, Peter, right before I met you, my time in Peru, 
I, long story, but I went down on a woman. And he looked at me, he said, you did what? No, you didn't. I said, I did, I went down on a woman. And I was really, really good at it too. And he looked at me and he furrowed his brow. And then he smiled. He said, you know, Richard, for 10 years, I have always known you as a guy that would do anything for anybody. So yeah, this is in the realm of possibility that you'd go down on a woman. And to tell you the truth, I am proud that you did it. And I felt a little bit redeemed. I felt pretty good about that. We leave the restaurant. We're walking back, and it's this sweltering, hot summer night. And we get to our apartment on Clinton Street, and right in front of our house there's always this truck with Mr. Softy. So we decided to get two soft-serve ice cream cones. <laughs> and we took them, and we go, and we sit on our front stoop, and Peter spreads his legs, and I'm just lounging in front of him, and he's playing with my hair. And we must have been like this image of a very gay, modern Michelangelo's Pietà. <laughs> And we're licking away, and I look at that soft serve, and I started licking as fast as I could. And you know something? Not one motherfucking drop hit that ground. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Knox behind me now featuring Powers and we or Power. Wait, what? What is her name? What the? But yeah, no Powers. Powers. <laughs> and before that, we heard Richard Cardillo, the wonderful Richard Cardillo. So much fun. You can find him on Twitter at Richard Cardillo. I so admire all the work that he does out there as an activist out in the field. You know, there are so many wonderful, wonderful groups that you can become a part of nowadays. If you go to indivisibleguide.com or swingleft.org or dailyaction.org, all great, great things to be a part of. Now, I want to tell you about a wonderful new podcast. You know, a lot of us first learned to love reading and storytelling by watching LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow. It's a little after my time, actually. I grew up <laughs> learning to read from uh, Morgan Freeman. But actually, J.C. Cass is the producer of the show. She loved Reading Rainbow so much that she wants to sleep with LeVar Burton. You might also know him from his years as Jordy LaForge or LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation. I don't know from Star Trek either. But anyway, LaVar has a new podcast to recreate the magic of reading for grown-ups. It's called LaVar Burton Reads. In each episode, LaVar picks one of his favorite short stories and reads it to you. You might escape with him to a remote lighthouse by the sea or take off on an alien spaceship to negotiate a assassination. <laughs> no one brings a story to life like LeVar. And with the music and original sound design, every episode is a new adventure. I think you'll really enjoy it. This is right up my alley, this sort of thing. But don't take my word for it. Subscribe to LeVar Burton Reads in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, that reminds me. If you love listening to storytelling in audible format, one of our very favorites is David Crabb. He shared some of the best stories you've ever heard on Risk before. So many wonderful stories. We love David. David actually teaches storytelling with us, too, at thestorystudio.org. But his book, his memoir, Bad Kid, it's so celebrated. So many critics love it. So many people, if you look at it in Amazon, it has a million great reviews. It's now out on Audible. If you go to audible.com, get Bad Kid. It's David reading his memoir. So that is going to be super, super entertaining. Bad Kid by David Crabb on Audible. Our final story on today's episode comes to us from our last show that we had at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Dan Wilbur is such a smart guy, such a great comedian. You can find him on Twitter, at Dan Wilbur. The two of us were in a show about a week before the election of 2016 we were in a show and he was recollecting with me at the bell house a couple of weeks ago that i made a joke during that show on stage i said here's a nightmare scenario here's a great idea for a horror movie what if the election never came it just kept not arriving (laughs) and now i'm like oh no 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 i know a much much scarier story the way the election actually turned out. <laughs> That's the horror movie we're living in now. <laughs> but let's put that aside for the moment and join Dan Wilbur on a walk down memory lane with a story we call Psychosomatic. I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and uh, we were talking about sex, and yeah. And I mentioned to him that I had sex for the first time at age 13, and he flipped out. He was like, that's way too young, way, way too young. And I was like, well, how old do you have to be? And he goes, I don't know, but you at least have to be emotionally mature first. And I was like, great. So you and me should just be virgins now. Um, (laughs) Emotionally mature. I guess I'm going to wait until I'm 45, settle down, have a few kids, then start thinking about sex. Um, But when looking back at my first sexual relationship, my first serious girlfriend, sex was like the least of my worries. Like it was the least problematic thing about the relationship. It was the thing that I was the most prepared to do. Uh, everything else was awful. Uh, so I'm going to set the scene for you. It's February of 2000 in Fairview Park, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. And uh, I remember it was February because the Johnston's house down the street had all these little plastic hearts stuck into their grass, like a bunch of them. And they, they just over-decorated for every non-holiday Like, they belonged to whatever religion Walgreens belongs to. It was really weird. They were weird people. And we're standing in front of those hearts, and my girlfriend says to me, my cancer's back. And she sort of grazes her neck where this scar is that she always references when she talks about this subject. And I say, how long have you known? And she says, a couple months. And I immediately get angry. I'm like, gosh, you should have told me first. Like, I want to know this stuff. I want to be in this with you. And I say, what kind of cancer is it? And she says, it's the same one that Susan Sarandon has in the movie Stepmom. And I say, I've never seen Stepmom. (laughs) And then she says, didn't we watch it together? And I'm like, I think I'd remember if I saw a movie that featured your cancer. And now we're arguing about the movie Stepmom, which I still have never seen. Uh, and like this most important time in our relationship. And she touches her neck again and she says, I have a 50-50 chance of making it. And there's no polite way to say this. 
Having a girlfriend with cancer in high school is awesome. You know, like you go to parties and stuff and you're, you're upbeat. They're like, oh my God, look at Dan taking it in stride. You know, his girlfriend's dying. It's like, it's, it's cool. And every time you're brooding at a party, they're like, well, can you blame him? I mean, he's in a black mood again, you know, his girlfriend's dying. Um, it, when you're in the suburbs and you're young, all you want is like a little unearned drama, you know, that's not yours, but like you can just hold on to and be like, look, I struggle also. That's all you want. I had this fantasy, you know, that, uh, that it would be like a walk to remember. We'd get married at 15 and then she'd die and I'd, the rest of my life I wouldn't be able to like open up emotionally to any other woman. I'd be like, you know, my first wife died when I was 15, so uh, I don't know. It's not going to work out for us. And while I'm having these martyrdom fantasies, she's like getting thinner and her hair seems to be thinning out and it's getting really serious. And one day she comes back from a summer vacation in Canada. She goes to Canada every year with her family. And she comes back and she's crying when we first meet each other. And I'm very worried. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to hear the words I don't want to hear. And and she says, when I was in Canada, I did the worst thing. And I was like, you killed someone in Canada? (laughs) She goes, no, I slept with someone else. Which was really aggravating, because like Canada's where you make up the fake boyfriends and girlfriends, you know? That's, you're like, oh yeah, I've had sex before with my girlfriend from Canada. But this was a real Canadian man who put his real penis inside her. And, uh, and I remember she gave me this little rubber ball with a maple leaf on it, and I was staring at it. And she was like, well, say something, you know? And I got really mad, and I threw the ball in the woods, and I was like, oh, fuck you, and just got really pissed at her. And I tried to muster up as much anger as I could, but the truth is, like, I had already forgiven her, you know? Because if I were dying, I too would not want to be constrained by monogamy as a teen, you know? I'd want to be out there playing the fields. So now I'm in an open relationship with a dying woman before I'm old enough to drive a car. That's where I found myself. And a few months into that, she just starts full-on dating other men. You know, I run into people. They're like, why are you getting up on my girl, dude? And I'm like, I've been dating her for years. I, what are you talking about? And so I finally decide to break it off because I'm like, you know, cheat on me physically, fine. But emotionally, come on. And... Uh, I wait, of course, for her to come back from Canada again the next year, you know, because I want to keep it going for a little bit. And I muster up my, all my jealous rage and I say, we're done. Can't take it anymore. And she has this big melodramatic moment where she says, you forgive, but you never forget, which I thought was really, I didn't like that. So I break up with her and a, f- uh, a year goes by My friend comes to talk to me before school. We're walking to school. She's a senior. I'm a junior at this point. And he says, I just need you to know your ex, she just got taken out of school for a couple weeks to go to treatment. And I start sobbing. I'm like, this is it. Oh, my God. Her family's going to call me and be like, you broke our daughter's heart. And then she fucking died right after and just weeping. And he goes, no, Dan, you understand. She's not in treatment for cancer. She's in treatment for an eating disorder because it turns out she never had cancer. She was just using it as a cover to drop a bunch of weights. Huh. Ah. Well, there certainly is egg on my face. This is upsetting. And things started to make sense, you know? Like, I told my parents knew about it, my friends knew about it, uh, but every time I was over at her house, uh, they would say things at dinner, you know, they'd be like, we just want to see her get healthy, and I'm like, me too, and they'd be like, yeah, we want to see her eating fruit and exercising, and I'd be like, you know, homeopathic root, that's fine, but uh, sure. I, you know, I'd go to chemo, but yeah. 
And we just never said the C word, you know? And even when I confronted her, I was so full of rage, I never wanted to see her again, but I, I did bump into her once. And the only time that I did talk to her, I still couldn't say the word. It was so, I was so aggravated. I said, how long when we were together were you sick? And she said, the whole time, which was true in a way, but she knew what I meant. Another year goes by, she's at college, and I'm just so full of rage, I don't know what to do. I'm at a Jesuit high school, so uh, I go to my cool priest. You know, the, the one that's like 20 years younger than the other priests. And I tell him the whole situation, and he just goes, I do not have the capacity to deal with this. Um, you're going to go see this theology teacher who's been married a couple times, and... Uh, you know, priests can't even have sex. I don't know why you came to me for counseling. And I go to this theology teacher, and it's such a godsend. He's, it was so sweet. He had me start writing letters to God. Just start, dear God, every morning. And of course, it's like, dear God, why do women lie? <laughs> like, just, And eventually I start crossing off the dear God on the top, and I just start writing little memoirs. And I start writing about this girl mostly, and... Uh, and one of my stories I write, and my friends love it. I'm in my first creative writing class, and it really just sparks my creativity. I'm, I'm just writing all the time. And I write one about her, and my friends love it. They're like, this is great. This is just so good. I can see how bitter and angry you are on the paper here. <laughs> and I go, you know who would love to see it? The woman who inspired it. So I sent a one-word email with an attachment of the story. It just said, enjoy, and I emailed it. And 45 minutes later, I get a call on my landline. My landline, thank God my parents weren't home. This is like, I sent the email, landline, pick it up. It's the girl's sister. She's screaming. She's like, how dare you send that to my sister? How dare you? How dare you send her a story that says that she ruined your life? And I was like, I, I didn't say she ruined it on purpose. I just said she sort of ruined it, you know? And <laughs> never call us again. Never talk to us again. And I'm very scared. I'm worried. It was all full. I mean, the story was full of, like, hyperbolic bullshit, you know? It was like, at one point, I compare myself to a soldier coming back from war <laughs> with shrapnel inside that no doctor could remove. I mean, it's just permanent. <laughs> That's the kind of, you know, normal first writing experience. And uh, I'm thinking about it, and I'm very scared. Um, I'm in class. I'm like, I'm going to get pulled out of, you know, they're going to find, everyone, everyone knows I've done something wrong. And I get pulled out by my guidance counselor from physics class. And it's the first time in the history of my school anyone's, like, begged to take a physics test, <laughs> you know, just getting dragged by the counselor, like, come on, i got to take it now. Come on, please, don't, let, don't make me go out here. And we walk outside, and my guidance counselor asks me a few questions, and then she reveals to me that my story triggered this girl's eating disorder, and she had to come back from school for a semester to recover. And I found that really gratifying, you know? <laughs> because, like, she could lie so well and invent a story so awful that I could internalize it and write about it myself and fill it with embellishments and stuff and then send it back to her and it would make her actually physically ill. <laughs> when I look back, you know, in, in retrospect, I feel like she was just trying to break up with me like at the beginning. And the lie just got too deep for her to handle. You know, she was like, nothing, I'll get rid of this dude. But I was just so focused on being like the good guy that saves her uh, that I got caught up in this mess. And, um, you know, another takeaway is that if you're looking for drama, you will find it and it will not be what you expect. And finally, if it is true that I'm still proud of this story, and uh, I'm happy that the entire episode made me a better writer and not necessarily a better person, uh, then I truly am petty. And uh, my friend at lunch was right. I'm not emotionally ready for anything. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys. I'm Dan. Bye.
is all for this week's episode folks this is nick Lowe behind me now when i was a kid in 1979 if you heard a song that you loved on the radio then you asked your parents to drive you to the record store and you bought yourself a little 45 a little record that had that song on it and a b-side the first two songs i ever bought were cruel to be kind by nick Lowe and my sharona by the knack and in the parking lot walking out with my two prize songs in the parking lot someone had dropped their copy of tusk by fleetwood mac so i went home with three songs that day now we just heard from dan wilbur who you can find on twitter at dan wilbur and thanks again to lavar burton reads the new podcast where LeVar picks his favorite short stories and reads them to you. Subscribe to LeVar Burton Reads in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, our list of where Risk is appearing next is epic again. And remember, you can always find it at risk-show.com slash tour. But let me walk you through these. On July 15th, we're in Philly at the World Cafe Live. July 15th, Risk is in Philadelphia. Come out and see us. On July 15th, we're also in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. Come on out, Los Angeles, on July 15th. On July 26th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. July 26th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On August 11th, we're in Toronto at the Great Hall. The theme that night is outrageous, and we are taking pitches for that. I'll talk about pitches in a little bit, but August 11th, we're in Toronto, and the theme is outrageous. On September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme is unexpected. September 9th in Salt Lake City. The theme is unexpected. On November 3rd, we're in Baltimore, at the Creative Alliance, the theme is Obsession. The theme is Obsession for November 3rd in Baltimore. On November 9th, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. The theme is Revealing. On November 10th, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. The theme is Huge. On November 11th, we're in Detroit. The theme is Surprise. And on December 2nd, we're in Phoenix. The theme is jaw-dropping. Now, if you live in or near one of those cities, definitely pitch us. Pitch us your stories. It's easy to do. You just go to risk-show.com slash submissions. The submissions page, there's a video of me explaining how to pitch us. There's some guidelines there. If you go to SoundCloud and look up Risk Show, there's a, a, a lecture there called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. That's also very helpful for people who want to pitch us. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and pitch us for any of those upcoming live shows. We will get back to you and let you know whether or not we want to work with you a little bit more. We help people workshop their stories before they actually do the show. And if you'd like some more intensive storytelling training, go to thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk.
Sound familiar, Allison?